right, just in time for the holiday season. All right, I don't know about you, but this holiday season, I am trying to reduce the amount of sugar intake, all right? And, well, it wouldn't be so difficult if they didn't just bring so many cookies in the office and just put it right in front of you. It's like, how do I do it? Bourbon balls, you guys can bring the bourbon balls, Kevin. Bev. I've, I, have to, I walk past those, but I'm, I'm good. But sometimes it's like, whew, it's hard to resist those goodies, Today we're going to be talking about temptation. How do we resist temptation? How do we resist listening to Christmas carols before Thanksgiving, right? I know some of you have already set up your Christmas decorations, but some of us still have hope, okay? Resist until Thursday. Today, how do we resist temptation? For me, it wasn't marshmallows. As a kid, it wasn't the sweet stuff, but it was, it was going to restaurants and not eating, okay, more than I should have. I always let my eyes be bigger than my stomachs, and so, well, my stomach, so it felt like I had stomachs, but I found myself in multiple restaurant parking lots after we'd go out to eat, we'll just say fertilizing the parking lot. Like, it was so bad. Like, I don't understand. It was like, all of a sudden, we'd go out to eat, and we didn't go out to eat very often as kids, and so it was like, all of a sudden, I became Oliver Twist, and I was like, please, sir, can I have some more? And I just couldn't resist the urge not to eat more, and it oftentimes got me sick. And yet every time, every time that would happen, I would say, never again, right? Never again. I'm not going to do this again. This is the last time I do this. I'm done with that. And then I would do it again. And I'm like, what is wrong with me? And I would imagine some of us can relate to that sentiment, never again. I'm not going to do that thing again. What is that for you? What is, what is the temptation in your life that you say, I'm done with? I'm, I'm done with. I'm not going to go back to it ever again. And yet you find yourself going back to it over and over and over again. For some of us, it, it might be alcohol, right? It might be not having that drink that we know we shouldn't have, but it's so hard to resist. Some of us, it, it might be a, another chemical, a drug. It might be codependency, Relying on another person in order to make us happy. It might be pornography. It, it might be food. Some people, we run to food in order to give us comfort. Others of us, it's maybe not an external behavior, but it's more of an internal thought pattern or attitude that we have. It might be the pride that gets the best of us that leads us to be very judgmental, very critical in our spirit. And it leads to situations like when we're around the Thanksgiving table with our friends and family members and words come out of our mouths that we wish we could take back and we say I thought I was done with that and yet we keep coming back to it over and over again for some of us it's how we resolve conflict through yelling through screaming with our kids and our spouses and we want to be done with it and yet it's the pattern that we always fall back into so how do we resist temptation? How do we not give into it? That's what we're going to talk about today. As we continue this teaching series called Test Prep, where we're looking at wisdom that the book of James offers to believers. The book of James was written by the half-brother of Jesus, and it's a, a wisdom book, almost like the New Testament's version of the book of Proverbs, practical wisdom for healthy living. And last week, Brett talked to us about how do we endure through trouble, through hard times that we find ourselves in, through sickness, through sadness. And today we're going to talk about how do we resist temptation, whatever that might be for us. So open up your Bibles to James chapter 1. 
James chapter 1. We're going to start reading in verse 12. Verse 12. James says this. Blessed, or fortunate is another way we could say it. Blessed or fortunate is the one who endures trials. Who endures trials. Now the Greek word here for trials could be translated temptations. Actually, it's most oftentimes translated temptations in the New Testament. But it can also be translated trials. And so you have to figure out which one is it, depending on the context. And I've wrestled with that this week. Which one is it? Is it trials? Is it temptations? And I don't know. The, the first few verses of chapter 1, James is talking, clearly talking about trials and hard times that we're going through. But the next few verses, he's going to be talking about temptations, those stumbling blocks that Satan puts in our way to hinder our relationship with Jesus. And so which one it is? I think it's both. I think James is saying, blessed is those who endures through trials and temptations. Because, well, trials oftentimes lead to temptations, hard times, temptation to throw in our towel on Jesus, to compromise our convictions. It says, blessed are the people who endure through those trials and temptations because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So what's the first principle that James is trying to teach us when it comes to overcoming temptation? It's this, that we need to keep our eye on the prize. In the midst of temptation, keep your eye on the prize. He says we need to have the same attitude that a a runner in a race has. I don't know if anybody here likes running in races. I do. I'm kind of sick like that. Okay, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I run every morning. I'll be running the turkey trot this Thursday. And on long races, if you've ever run them, you know what you have to do when you hit the wall. When all of a sudden you're like, I've got no energy left. Uh, my, my body is cramping up. My body and my lungs are saying, don't go any further. Your body's saying, quit. What do you do? You go to that mental space in your mind. You will picture yourself at the finish line. You picture yourself what you're going to do later on in the day. You picture yourself on the couch with your friends and families gathered around bringing you food, and you're just like, thank you. <laughs> oh. You know, in the first century, people who ran in a race, they would receive a crown. They would receive a, a laurel wreath that would signify the fact that they didn't give up. That they, they didn't quit when times got tough, but they endured and they made it to the finish line. So people who run in a race would imagine themselves getting this crown upon their head. And James is saying one day as followers of Jesus, if we continue to be faithful to him, we will receive this crown of life. Now he's not saying that our salvation is dependent upon us getting it right all the time and us never giving in to temptation. But he is saying that one day if you continue to stay faithful to Jesus then you will receive that crown of life. And I think he's also reminding us of the fact that even though our possession of the kingdom isn't affected by how we live and how we give or don't give into temptation, our experience of it will be changed. Our, our position in his kingdom, the fruit that we will have there, the treasure that we will have there will be affected. The way that we live right now will affect how we experience eternity and the joy that we have, the intimate relationship that we will have with God. And so he said, keep your eye on the prize, not only for an eternal perspective, but in each and every day life. Like, like in, in the days that you face trials and temptation, you've got to picture yourself beating the temptation mentally, right? As an athlete, athletes don't just practice what they got to do on the field. They, pr they practice mentally them making that layup or them catching that football. They do it mentally before they have to do it 
physically. That helps them do it physically. And when we face trials and temptation, we have to have that our eye on the prize and remind ourselves of how good it's going to feel when we beat that temptation. For me, one thing I've been struggling with in this past year is getting to bed on time because those Netflix shows, it's just like, man, I can get sucked in. And so what do I have to do? I have to picture myself shutting off the TV at bedtime, going to bed, and reminding myself of how good I'm going to feel the next day if I do that. And I also picture myself getting up feeling groggy if I don't. So I, I picture mentally what is waiting ahead. Keep your eyes on the prize. This is Eugene Lang. It's a picture of Eugene Lang. He was a successful businessman. Passed away recently. But he, in 1981, was a multimillionaire. He was asked to speak to the sixth graders who were graduating from the grade school that they were attending, the same grade school that he attended when he was their age, 50 years before. So he goes back to his own old shopping grounds in East Harlem, New York, to public school 121, to speak to these graduating sixth graders. In the past 50 years, the neighborhood had changed. It had become just riddled with crime and drug activity and gang activity. And he knew the school system was failing, so he went back to encourage these kids to stay in school, to work hard, to study, so they can make something of themselves. So he prepared his speech, and he got ready to give it. But as he was going up to the podium, the principal stopped him and just said, thank you, Eugene, for coming. This means so much to us. Just so you know, the majority of these kids aren't going to graduate from high school. You know, the majority of kids in our school system, they drop out before graduating. So it, it's really, it's really man, it means a lot to us that you would sacrifice your time to come and speak to these kids. If you can do anything just to encourage them to stay in school, that would be that would just make, make the world to us, be, make a big difference. And so he looks at his speech at this point. And he says, what is this? Gonna, this isn't going to help them, encourage them to work hard, stay in school. They've all they got so many other trials and temptations. I, I got to do something else. So he rips up his speech, and he gets up to the podium, and he just begins to speak from the heart. He begins looking at them in the eye, and he says, students, I believe in you. He says, he says you can make something of your life. You can, you can get out of this neighborhood. You can have a successful career, but you've got to study hard. You've got to stay in school. You've got to go to college. And he said, if you study hard, if you get into college, I will pay for your college tuition. You know what happened? 90% of the kids in that sixth grade class who heard him speak that day ended up graduating from high school or getting their GED so they could go to college. It went from the majority of them failing and dropping out to the majority of them passing and going to college. Why? Because all of a sudden they, they started dreaming of this preferred future. They had hope. They had a vision for what was possible. Something that wasn't possible before now was possible. And we have that hope in Jesus because of what he has done for us on the cross and redeeming us. That there is a better hope. That there is a future awaiting for us. The, the question is, do we have that picture of a preferred future in mind for us? of us beating that temptation, whatever the battle that we face. Because the thing is, the, in those kids' lives, what didn't change were the trials that they faced. What didn't change were the temptations that they faced. They lived in the same neighborhood, had the same families, same teachers, same struggles, and yet what gave them, what fueled them to overcome those temptations was the picture of the preferred future that they now had in mind. 
So the question I have for you is, what's the picture for future that's fueling you to beat the temptation that you are facing? Let me talk to students for a second. I know in middle school and in high school, you are going to face temptations that sometimes seem too, too big for you to conquer. It's going to be easy for you just to kind of go with the flow, try to fit in, just try to be one of the cool kids. The question I have for you is, do you have a vision for you walking across that stage on graduation day, knowing that you are a person of conviction? Knowing that you didn't just go with the flow and just tried to fit in. But you shine brightly for Jesus. I know for me the greatest compliment I ever received was my senior year of high school. I was at my locker in between classes and my friend Ryan Lysing comes up to me. He goes, Sean, Sean, did you hear what Katie Belling just said about you? I'm like, no, I've never spoken to Katie Belling in my life. Like, What? He goes, oh, well, I heard her. She was with all like, the, her friends, all those girls, the popular girls, and they were talking about you. Well, he said, oh, that, that's Sean Cronin kid. He's kind of good looking, but he's one of those Jesus freaks. <laughs> Ryan, I, I think assuming that I would be offended by that, says, what do you think about that? I said, that's awesome. That is awesome. That is exactly how I want to be known, Ryan. Because Jesus died for me, so I'm going to live for him. Students, I want you to walk across that stage when you graduate and have no regrets. Have a picture of a preferred future in your mind and, and run towards it. Helen Keller once said that the only thing worse than being blind is having sight but no vision. See, what, what's the difference between the high school student that feels called into ministry, feels called to become a doctor so they can serve God on a medical missionary, on a, as a medical missionary. What's the difference between that student who sacrifices time, energy, so they can be a medical missionary, and the student who graduated from high school and says, I just got to go to college, I guess. So they, be, they study humanities, they end up eating a lot of pizza and playing video games, getting in a lot of college debt, and then living in their parents' basement for five years. It's oftentimes not work ethic. It's oftentimes not intelligence. It's vision. It's the fact that one has a picture of the preferred future that fuels them to bypass all of those temptations, all those trials to get to that preferred future. And so couples, do you have a picture of a preferred future for your marriage? Like do you have a, a, preferred, a picture of a preferred future for your marriage five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now? Do you, do you dream about the day that you will stand across from your spouse, your helpmate? 20 years from now, rededicating your vows to one another, renewing your vows. Do you, do, you have a, do you have a picture of yourself celebrating 50 years of marriage with your kids and grandkids and great-grandchildren? Here's a picture of my preferred future if I were to ever get married. Here are my great-grandparents. Graydon and Lois Hessler. They were married for 72 years before my great-grandmother passed away. And as, as, kid, or as, as a great-grandchild, we always assumed that they had like the best relationship and they never fought and never had conflict. Well, after my great-grandfather died, my uncle started telling our generation of kids about their relationship. And he was like, you know, it, 
It wasn't always smooth sailing for them kids, okay? They had a lot of years of conflict and strife, but they worked through it. And he, he was relating. He's like, you know, with, 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 with your great-grandmother, Butto, we called her. With Butto, you had this woman of, of British pride and dignity. And then with, with Grandpa, you had this, this German man of German engineering precision. And you know what you get when you put those two things together? My dad woke up and goes, two world wars. <laughs> Yeah, and that kind of summed up their relationship for many years, but they stayed faithful to one another for 72 years because they had a vision of one day meeting Jesus face to face and them being, knowing that they had honored him in their marriage and had a vision of, hey, celebrating their 70th anniversary with their kids and their grandkids and their great-grandchildren. And if my sister hadn't taken such a long time to have kids, it would have been five generations. I certainly didn't help out either, but okay. But they had vision. They had vision for staying together. And in the hard times, they held on to that vision. They kept their eye on the prize. Peter Marshall was once a, the chaplain for the U.S. Senate. He once prayed this amongst our nation's leaders. He said, God, give us clear vision. Give us clear vision that we may know where to stand and what to stand for. Because unless we stand for something, we, fall, we shall fall for anything. Yes, unless we have clear vision for where we're headed, we're going to fall for temptations, for trials when they come our way. So do you have a picture of a preferred future for your marriage? If we do, it'll help us apply the second principle that James talks about in verse 13 when he says, no one undergoing a trial should say, hey, I'm being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. So James is pointing out the fact here that oftentimes when we face trials and temptations, it's easy for us to kind of blame somebody else. Sometimes we blame God. Sometimes we put it on God. I've had friends that have said, God is telling me I needed to get a divorce so that we can marry this other person. And they put it on God, and we say, no, you're spiritualizing your emotions. I know it seems like it's good, but God's word tells us the heart is deceitful above all things. It's beyond all cure. Who can understand it? And so we don't blame God. We don't say, you know, I, I just struggle with this because I was, I was born this way, or, you know, I, I, I'm predisposed to this, or I had a very long week. Some of us, I do it sometimes, justify. I'm going to stay up late watching Exodus because it was a long week, and I deserve this. It's like... That's not, going to be, that's not helping you, Sean. That's not helping you say no, trying to justify, rationalize your poor choices. You know, it kind of reminds me of Ralph, the middle-aged man who went to his doctor for his yearly physical. Doctor looks at his chart and is looking it over. And, Ralph, man, you've been coming for the last five years and so we've been saying the same thing. It's time for you to lose some weight, right? It's time for you to get to diet and exercising. And you say, every year you say you're going to do it. And yet this year, you put on 10 pounds. What's it going to take? What's it going to take for you to get on a diet and exercise so you can lose some weight? You know, Ralph sighed. I know, Doc. I know. Every year, I, I want to do it. I, I, I try to do it. Doc, it's just really hard for me. It's really hard for me to lose weight. You know, it's, you know, you know what the problem is? The problem is that obesity runs in my family. And Doc thought about it for a second and he says, no, Ralph, the problem is not that obesity runs in the family. The problem is nobody runs in your family. 
And yes, it's easy to make excuses, right? It's easy to blame somebody else. It's easy to say, you know, I'm just predisposed to alcohol because of my parents and it's in my genes and so I just got to have it every once in a while or I'm, I'm predisposed to, you know, kind of lashing out at my kids or my spouse because that's the environment in which I was raised. It's just who I am. It's easiest to kind of shift the blame to somebody else instead of owning our temptations. That's the second principle. We need to own our temptation. We need to own up and say this is the battle that we need to fight. And with God's help, we can beat it. Yes, we can beat it. Uh, when I was in college, I played basketball. And I, I played for one of my favorite coaches ever, incredible basketball mind. And, and he was able to take our team and make us better than we were individually you know basically he said okay here's the hand that I've been dealt and all of us have been dealt a hand of cards right all of us have been dealt a hand of cards and all of us have some bad cards right it's easy to kind of blame cards on other people but all of us have a bad set of cards and he says okay here's the team that we have how do I get them to work best together he's an incredible offensive minded coach and well he would study our tendencies as a team so he had statisticians that would record every foul all our free throws, when we were missing them, when we were making them, when we had turnovers. And then he would watch the game film. He would watch the game film to see, okay, why are we getting in tr foul trouble at this point in the game? Why are we missing our free throws? Is it because we're out of shape? Is it because we're, you know, our technique is off, our form is off? Why are we making turnovers? Because we don't know the plays. And then he would develop a game plan for practice to mitigate those mistakes. He would study our tendencies and say, we need to work on our free throws or we need to run more because no, we're not in good shape. He would study our tendencies to help us overcome our mistakes. And that's the same thing we need to do as followers of Jesus, is study our tendencies. Understand, okay, where are we vulnerable? Where, where does Satan oftentimes get the best of us? For some of us, it might be when we get home from work and it's been a stressful long day at work, and that's when we lose our cool. That's when we're most ir irritable. And so if we study our tendencies, well, then we have to get a game plan and say, so how am I going to mitigate that mistake? For some people, it's they, they don't come right home from work, but they go to the gym and they get a little sweat. They work off that stress. I see it every day as a fitness instructor. People come in burdened, overwhelmed. But then I make them carry 70-pound dumbbells, and they leave a lot lighter. Okay, They leave a lot lighter, and I don't know if they're just happy that they're done with their workout or if they have less stress. But, man, they're, they're, just, better, they're just like better human beings afterwards. But study your tendencies. When does Satan oftentimes get the best of you? And then make a game plan to say, how am I going to beat that? Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Do not commit adultery. Everybody knows that. But he says, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one, part of, one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. You know, Jesus is saying we've got to study our tendencies. Where are you most vulnerable? And, and don't just study your tendencies, but study what situations you put yourself into that makes you most vulnerable to stumble and fall. Right? He's not saying, okay, don't just not go to bed with somebody who's not your spouse. He says, what are the things that you put your, what are the decisions that you make that might even lead to that? So for a lot of my friends, young, adult, young guys, they say, Sean, I love working out, but when I'm at the gym, 
That's like when my lustful eye gets the best of me because I'm in a gym in that environment and there are a lot of women that aren't wearing many clothes. And I say, I get that. I said, that's why I work out without my glasses on. That's why I just take my glasses off. It's a lot less temptation when everyone's blurry. It helps me. I don't know. If you have 20-20 vision, that might not help you. Okay? But think about it. If you're trying to lose weight, be very careful what aisles you walk down in the grocery store. Right? Stay in the produce aisle. Don't go down the junk food aisle. You're just asking. Basically, you're playing with fire. And when you play with fire, you're always going to get burned. Jesus said in Luke eleven thirty four, your eyes are the lamp of the body. It says your eyes are the lamp of the body. If your eyes are full of light, your whole body will be full of light. Translation, where your eyes go, your heart and your mind will follow. Yeah, so we might be careful of where we're going and, and what, we're, what we're seeing. For some people, it's, they, they become compulsive buyers because of what their eyes see and the advertisements they're seeing when they're watching football or when they're on the internet and they just have to buy that thing. Or it's the beer commercials. If that's the case, watch football and walk away when the commercials come on. Don't put yourself in that compromising situation. Jesus said, it is so serious. In verse 30, he says, if your hand causes you to sin, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Cut it off. Right? He's told us to gouge out our eye. He told us to cut off our hand. I would imagine that most of our next steps is not going to be to go home today and cut your hand off. Okay? I would not recommend that. Some people have taken this scripture literally. I'm not going to recommend that. But I might recommend something that might be just as difficult for some of us. It might be getting rid of this thing. Like, I don't know if you know, I've got an iPhone, and does anybody know what image this is on the phone? What's the image? It's an apple with a bite mark in it. It's like Satan's not even being subtle here. Like, <laughs> it's like I can take you down in a thousand different ways with this phone, right? There are apps on this phone that might need to be deleted. Right, maybe you're married and you downloaded a dating app just to see who else is out there. Delete that thing right now. Some of us, there are apps on here that lead us to see things that will engage that lustful eye and lead us down a path that will lead to destruction. So maybe, yes, it's your next step is not to cut off your hand, but to get a dumb phone. A phone that just allows you to text and call people and isn't going to lead you down that dark road of temptation. James 1.15, he continues saying this, Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. James is saying, when that thought comes into your mind, hey, maybe I should check out how my old sweetheart is doing on Facebook. He says, murder that thought. Don't even give it room to breathe. When that, when that temptation, when that thought comes into your mind, to allow those words to come out of your mouth that you know you're going to regret, don't entertain it. Walk away. Remove yourself from the environment. Don't give in an opportunity to breathe because if it breathes, it will grow. And if it grows, it will become uncontrollable. And that's when you fall. So James continues in verse 16, says, Don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And so here he is saying that after we learn to own our temptation, we have to, number three, embrace the goodness 
of God. If we're going to overcome temptation, we've got to embrace the goodness of God. We've got to remind ourselves on a daily basis that God is our Heavenly Father, and every good and perfect gift comes from above, and that includes all the rules, all the regulations, all the boundaries, all the stipulations that we find in His Word. And as kids, just like we had to learn that our parents actually do want what is best for us, their boundaries that they put in our life aren't there to ruin our fun, but is to help us have the best life. So God's rules, so his word is there for our benefit, not to ruin our lives. But I would imagine that most of us probably are embracing the goodness of God. Most of us probably believe that God does know what is best for us and wants what is best for us. The question is, how do we internalize that? How do we make that, that that's what our hearts desire, that's what our mind wants for us? Well, Psalm 34 puts it this way, gives us instructions saying, Psalm 34, 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. First Peter puts it this way, rid yourselves therefore of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, and like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. The Bible is telling us if we want to overcome temptation, we've got to develop new appetites. We've got to, we've got to develop a, an appetite for that which is good for us. Two months ago, my roommate Andy finally stopped putting off what he knew he needed to do, which was go to the doctor and get his yearly physical. He knew for years he had been in denial. He was overweight. He knew he was out of shape. So he finally he went to his doctor, and his doctor looked at his numbers, his blood work, and he said, Andy, if you don't change within four months, you're going to become a diabetic. His glucose levels were off the charts. Cholesterol was off the charts, way overweight. And so he said, I need to make a change. And so he actually bought a bike so he could ride to work. And he started cooking food at home instead of just going to fast food places for lunch and for dinner. And he started cooking dishes like this. Got some pictures. Dishes with, he got an air fryer, started frying up Brussels sprouts and yams and sweet potatoes. And started having cucumber salad and started frying up peppers and onions. And in two months time, in the past two months, he's lost over 60 pounds. Lost over 60 pounds by diet and exercise. Just making those decisions. Having this food ready so that when he's tempted to eat, he'll eat this food. Now I'll admit, when I look at those dishes, I think they actually look pretty good. But when I was a kid, oh, I would have stuck my nose up. I wouldn't have eaten it. As a kid, I didn't like vegetables. right? My, my parents said, Sean, you're going to eat what's in front of you or you're going to go to bed hungry. And because I had a hollow leg, okay, I kept my eye on the prize, and I would plug my nose, and I would eat the peas, and I would eat the asparagus, and I would eat the cauliflower, and I'd eat the broccoli. And you know what happened after forcing myself to eat that, those vegetables for so many years? All of a sudden, what was once terrible became tolerable. And then over other years, became, what was tolerable then became tasty. I developed a taste for vegetables and the appreciation for them. It's benefited my health. Same thing is true with us spiritually. We've got we to feed our spiritual nature. There are things in our lives that we think might be maybe a waste of time, might be disgusting. We kind of are repulsed by them in some way, sometimes spending time with God in prayer, Bible reading, serving, giving. We're like, how can you even do that? It doesn't seem very fun to me. But the, the more that you do it, the more that you can acquire a taste for it. Reminds me of a poem I've shared before that talks about the, 
two natures that we have as followers of Jesus. One nature of a spiritual nature, the Holy Spirit's in control of. The other, that's our fleshly nature. And we've got to make a decision which one we're going to feed. It goes like this. Two natures beat within my breast. The one is foul, the one is blessed. The one I love, the one I hate, the one I feed will dominate. So what appetite are you feeding? What, what, what appetite are you growing in? Center of Bible Engagement, they had a study, and they, they, they show, their, their study shows that people who read their Bible at least four times a week, they decrease the likelihood that you're going to get drunk by 57%, engage in sex outside of marriage by 68%, view pornography, pornography by 61%, Gambling by 74%. You read your Bible at least four times a week, you will increase your likelihood of sharing your faith with others by 228%. Discipling others by 231%. Memorizing scripture by 407%. By getting in God's word, by feasting on his truth. Four times a week or more. The question is, what appetite are we feeding? Are we acquiring a taste for that which is good and life-giving? Or are we just filling up on spiritual junk food? In 1863, Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Many of you probably learned that in history class. Freed all slaves in the southern territory, states that weren't part of the Union at the time. And yet, even at that point, even after the Civil War ended, you know that most slaves who were announced free didn't run to their freedom. They didn't run and become lawyers and doctors and business owners. Most of them stayed on the land that they were just had always worked, and they became sharecroppers. They didn't run to their freedom. Why? They were free, but they just didn't know any different. They didn't have educations. They didn't have connections. They didn't have credit. They didn't have the opportunities like most other people. It took time for them to grow in that. They were declared free, but most just continued to live in their slavery for many years. Why? Because that's all they knew. It's what they'd been trained by for their whole entire life, and that's the same thing that's true of us spiritually. All of us have been declared free. If you give your life to Christ, you surrender your life to him in the waters of baptism, you are set free from your sin, and yet we're still going to struggle with our sin because that's what we've been trained by for so long. Those are the habits. And until we develop new skills, until we develop that new appetite, we're going to continue to fall to those same habits that we're just so accustomed to. So the question is, what appetite are you feeding today? How are you going to overcome temptation? Think about what's my next step? How am I going to overcome temptation? Do you have a picture of the preferred future of you Feeding them temptation. Do you, do, you, do you dream about the day that you will stand toe-to-toe with Jesus and he will give you that crown of life? Are you owning your temptation? Not blaming others, but saying this is a battle, God, that we can face, that we can beat. Are you developing an appetite for that which is good? I don't know what your next step is when it comes to overcoming temptation, but I pray in the next few moments that you would listen to God's voice, that he would give you the strength to take it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for the fact that we have been freed from our sin. God, you, are, you have given us a new spirit. 
And yet we continue to struggle, God. We admit that. We confess that. And so, God, we know that we can't beat this on our own. And so we need you. We need your power. We need your help to help us to say no to ungodliness so that we can say yes to your best for our lives. So, God, help us to embrace your goodness, the goodness that we see so clearly demonstrated to us on the cross. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.